Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. With the new season of Game of Thrones, it's hard to avoid the buzz around dragons, magic, and epic battles. But fantasy motifs are all over rock music as well. We share some of our favorites. Plus, hip-hop stalwarts Public Enemy have released their 14th album. Hate is gonna hate, fake is gonna fake, break is gonna break, neophytes gonna make mistakes. We'll have our review of Nothing is Quick in the Desert. And Neil Halstead of Slow Dive tells us about the song that made him up his musical game. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. Like a whole planet, damn it, one man or one woman can't understand the group plan. This is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. And later on in the show, Jim, we're going to discuss uh, fantasy in rock yeah. music, uh, a topic, a thread that has been occupying the minds of songwriters for decades. We're going to talk about some of our favorite songs. The swirling mists over the moats around <laughs> Mordor, Greg. Dragons and castles, you name it, we're going to talk about it in terms of rock music. But uh, first, Jim, we've got to talk about uh, a big piece uh, that you broke this week on One R. Kelly, an artist whose travails you have been uh, documenting uh, for over a decade now. Well, since uh, what 2000. Is the, yeah. What is the latest development? Um, Greg, there was a piece that I'm uh, enormously proud of that took nine months of reporting that ran on BuzzFeed. Um, there are two sets of parents in Georgia and in Florida and three very brave women who put their names on the record and told their stories. Two of those women had been involved in sexual relationships with Kelly for a long period of time. One was a personal assistant who worked with him for a long period of time. The story that these sources are saying is that Kelly is uh, holding, allegedly, uh, young women, 18 and 21, against their will, their words, uh, brainwashing them, their word, uh, as part of a cult, their word, wherein they are told when to eat, when to sleep, how to dress, uh, how to pleasure him sexually in encounters that he records. And their cell phones are taken away. Contact with friends and family are taken away, allegedly, according to all of these sources. And they are physically and mentally abused, allegedly, if they break any of these rules. Jim, this is not the first time you've reported on uh, R. Kelly. Uh, you've uh, this this piece appeared in BuzzFeed. You have been done done earlier reporting on R. Kelly in the Chicago Sun Times. Uh, Greg, I've been living with this story since the first in- investigative report in the Chicago Sun Times ran in two thousand. Uh, it said that Kelly was illegally uh, abusing his position of fame and wealth to have sexual relationships with underage girls. A year after that story, a 26-minute and 39-second videotape arrived to us at the Chicago Sun-Times, which uh, we turned over to police and got him indicted on 21 counts of making child pornography. We had also reported at the newspaper uh, that Kelly had illegally married Aaliyah right after producing her debut album. That relationship was annulled. We had the court papers that proved it. There have been dozens of young women who have filed suit against Kelly, alleging illegal sexual relationships, and he has paid off those lawsuits with large cash settlements. He was acquitted by a 
jury of his peers in 2008 on the child porn charges, but none of the other evidence, not Aaliyah or any of these other women, was ever presented in court. It strictly focused on the one 14-year-old girl, prosecutors said, that was shown having sex with Kelly. Um, So the music industry has... I would say enabled uh, this artist uh, to have a two and a half decade career as the top artist in R&B in the world, while allegations have swirled around him throughout all that time. And the important thing BuzzFeed reported on Monday uh, was that the young women are in jeopardy right now, uh, allegedly as part of a cult is the word these sources use, living with Kelly. Kelly, as you mentioned, has been able to continue his career uh, in many ways as uh, extravagantly as ever uh, in the years when these charges were swirling. He he is touring this summer under the aegis of Live Nation, the largest corporate concert promoter in the world. He appeared on December 23rd singing Christmas songs on The Tonight Show, and Jimmy Fallon gave him a big old hug. You know, Lady Gaga recorded a song with him only a few years ago. Beyonce has tapped him to produce. His career has not suffered at all, despite the trail uh, of, of young women who allege that their lives were ruined by him, dating back to the mid-90s. What has been the response to your BuzzFeed report? It's only a few days old now. What kind of response have you been getting? Greg, uh, R. Kelly, uh, through a civil attorney, has uh, denied all charges and said he is all about peace and love and stopping the violence in Chicago. RCA Records has declined to comment. And uh, one of the young women that we wrote about but did not name in BuzzFeed to protect her privacy has said she's where she wants to be. But again, the parents say she is brainwashed, that is their word, and the parents are alleging a case of their words, Stockholm Syndrome. Jim, obviously the story has a lot of threads to it. You're going to continue reporting on this story. Uh, We will hear more from you soon. One, two, one, two. Yo! Yo, one, two, nothing is quick in the desert. One, two, Joe. Not put here to judge between the quick and the dead. I'll be slick with this kid of time. Rhyme that I said, Go. digitize the present. Download it in a minute. The future is now, cause there ain't no front in it. Steady staying chained to that wagon of old ways. That last past second, we now call the old days. That is a little bit of Public Enemy, the title track from their 14th studio release, Nothing is Quick in the Desert. We should point out that this record is not officially available anymore. They basically put it up on the web for a few days via Bandcamp, and then it disappeared, but it's all over YouTube. It is on the YouTubes, yes. And and Chuck D. has not been shy about directing fans to where they can find it. Uh, But the point being that Public Enemy is still a going entity. Not many people may realize that. Uh, they, They have been doing this for 30 years, more or less continually. Uh, and continued to tour extensively. Uh, obviously, Public Enemy broke in uh, with agit-rap masterpieces, Yo Bum Rush the Show in 1987, followed by It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back in 88. Fight the Power anchored that mm. soundtrack for that amazing Spike Lee 1989 portrait of race relations in Brooklyn, uh, Do the Right Thing. Uh, Welcome to the Terror Dome, another masterpiece in 1990. These are defining 
uh, rap albums uh, for the late 80s, early 90s that Public Enemy was churning out uh, with a definitely a political and social commentary angle uh, that raised the level of the game both lyrically and sonically with the Bomb Squad production. Now we have the group continuing on its 30th anniversary with this 14th studio release. Here's a track from it. We're going to review it in a second. It's called Yesterday Man from Public Enemy on Sound Opinions. Yesterday Man by Public Enemy. The new album is called Nothing is Quick in the Desert. Extraordinary career, Greg, uh, and the 14th album. Is rap still the black CNN? Um, Chuck D. Uh, He's still calling for revolution. He still proudly uses that word. There's one thing here still that I wouldn't miss at all, and that's Flava Flav. I'm sorry, but I was tired of Flav by the point of it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. A little Flav goes a very long way. Number two, there's no Bomb Squad, all right? There is sort of a rap rock production, I think, sensibility here that works at some times when there's the funkier stuff, and at other times uh, there's a little too much like hambone heavy metal guitar almost on top of the grooves. You know, Chuck has one of the most distinctive voices in hip-hop history. I would say all of musical history, all right? You know, that that baritone, I could listen to Chuck talk about anything, and he has some spot-on political observations that come direct from his recent work as a radio host, as a political writer. But about half the album lacks the sort of visceral public enemy catharsis that I very much was looking for this week that was going to have me banging my head like the best Slayer or the best punk rock. Half of it is is pretty solid, as good as anything public enemy ever has given us. I The best I can give it, though, on our buy it, try it, trash it scale is a try it. Yeah, Jim, I, I think people who are looking for, you know, old school uh, public enemy are going to have to look to the old school public enemy yeah. to find it because uh, the latest incarnation of the group isn't matching up uh, blow for blow, song for song with the with the old crew. I'm, I'm not with you on Flav. I think he's a necessary 
kind of comedic element in in what is otherwise a very serious, hard-hitting group. I mean, Chuck D's a serious dude. Well, yeah. Because you, you just need a little flavor. You need a little uh, flavor flavor to sort of, you know, balance the spice sometimes. If he hadn't done the reality TV show, I might agree with you. Um, you'd mentioned the Bomb Squad production, and that was a key element in, in why those records were so powerful, those dense collage-style mixes of samples and piled upon samples with some live instrumentation. Now it's pretty much a, a live thing. You mentioned the uh, the guitar playing. There's a guy named Kerry Wynn that has been a big part of this group uh, for a few years now, and he gets a lot of show pieces here. What we've got basically here is a 90s rap rock record. Yeah. You know, and... and, and well, and Ice-T even appears on it. You know, yeah. uh, from from him having done his rap rock and, thing. And further still, you know, Chuck is Chuck D is working with uh, former Rage Against the Machine guitarist Tom Morello in a group called Prophets of Rage. And this seems like a sort of a lesser Prophets of Rage project. Chuck D sounds like the, like uh, the bitter old man, you know, saying, get off my lawn to those kids. Drake, Kanye, uh, come on, you guys can't keep up with me. That is not you need kind. To, you need that to is, step up. That's not kind. He sounds like the professor he always has been. Oh, you know, but there's, there, you know, and I'm not critiquing that in a, in a negative way. I kind of like when Chuck D's cranky. <laughs> I like the way he says certain lines. That whole business about there, that there's this great line, we lost real flows to mumbles and memes, you know? Yeah, and he, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm kind of enjoying it when he gets yeah. worked up about this stuff. Testify, Chuck. They are still a formidable arena rap group right now. Yeah. Uh, probably better on stage than they actually are on record. So if you take it in the context that this is a record that they built to be played on stage, I think it works in that context. So it was a try-it record for me as well. So that's a try-it record from both of us on Public Enemies. Nothing is quick in the desert. But what do you think? Give us a call and leave a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800, or you can connect with us through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. When we come back from a short break, dungeons, dragons, goblins, magic, and music. We're talking about fantasy's influence on rock music. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Hail Atlantis. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. 
Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, my partner's Jim DeRogatis, and Game of Thrones is back. I know I'm excited. No spoilers are coming up, but we're in the mindset of fantasy worlds, and uh, we're going to bring you some of our favorite music about fantasy worlds. Jim, you're going to kick us off. Yeah, I am, Greg. Boy, I had a lot of fun doing this. I mean, this was my 13-year-old Jim listening to progressive rock, listening to heavy metal. There are so many great songs throughout rock history uh, and even hip-hop history. I'll surprise you with one pick later uh, about fantasy worlds. But I think, you know, look, you're talking about fantasy, and number one in fantasy forever is going to be Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, and number one in hard rock, of course, is Led Zeppelin. And those two forces collided on Led Zeppelin II, Arguably, many fans say, you know, Zepp's heaviest metal album, except for Ramble On and the pop song Thank You. But Ramble On, it's an atypical acoustic kind of ramble, very much properly titled, that holds the immortal words. "'Twas in the darkest depths of Mordor, I met a girl so fair, but Gollum, the evil one, crept up and slipped away with her." You know, you know so you ask Robert Plant today, oh, yeah. as you and I have interviewed Robert Plant on Sound of Pain, he is really embarrassed. Uh, just as, as another one of the artists I'm going to talk about later is, you know, they don't own up to ever having been 19-year-old, you know, super fantasy geeks stoned out of their gourds. But that's clearly what was going on here. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even the only time in Zepp's catalog uh, the, 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 that he sang Robert Plant about, about Mordor and Tolkien. However, this is an immortal song. Ramble On by Led Zeppelin on Sound Opinion. Got no time for spinning. The time has come to be gone. And though I held we drank a thousand times It's time to ramble on
Led Zeppelin, Ramble On. Great song about fantasy in rock. Craig, I'm eager to hear yours. Agreed, Jim. And I'm going to fast forward a few decades to uh, Deltron 3030 in the year 2000 uh, when they released their self-titled debut album. Uh, I'm going to leave behind the world of Dungeons and Dragons and these medieval kind of scenarios and and go way into the future. This is very sci-fi, but there's still an element of magic and mysticism so here we have a, a super group of sorts. Uh, Dan the Automator is the producer. He's worked on Gorillas and with Cool Keith on the Dr. Octagon Project, Kid Koala on Turntables, and Del the Funky Homo Sapien as the MC. And he's the real star of the show. He's taking the soundtrack and, and weaving a, a, an elaborate scenario about the future, about him being, in the, uh, being a rebel in the year 3030 with superpowers battling a government that wants to bury the truth and stop the revolution. Mm-hmm. And applications for the present day uh, certainly apply. I think there's, there's yeah. a thinly veiled metaphor for what they saw going on in the world in 2000 and certainly to a degree today. It sounds also like Russia's 2112. Yeah. So he's using ESP, right? I mean, you know, he's got supersensory powers to protect himself from the government's mind control experiments. Outside of the major cities, uh, the, the, the world has turned to, uh, has been overrun by cannibals. So he paints this very <laughs> elaborate world in this record. Uh, It is fantasy to the 10th degree. Here's the title track. This is the one that kicks it off uh, from the Deltron 3030 debut album in 2000 on Sound Opinions. Yo, it's 3030. I want y'all to meet Deltron Zero Hero. Not no small feat. It's all heat in this day and age. I'll rage your grave. Anything it takes to save the day. Neuromancer. Perfect blend of technology and magic. Use my rapping so you all can see the hazards. Plus entertainment where many are brainless. We cultivated the lost art of study and I brought a buddy. Automator, hard to slay a fascinating combination. Cyber warlords are activating abominations. Armination with hatred, we ain't with that. We high tech archaeologists searching for knickknacks. Composing musical stem packs that impacts the soul. Crack the mold of what you think you rapping for. I used to be a mech soldier, but I didn't respect orders. I had to step forward, tell them this ain't for us. Living in a post apocalyptic world, morbid and horrid. The secrets of the past, they hoarded. Now we just boarded on our futuristic spacecraft. No mistakes, black. It's our music we must take back. That is the track. 3030 from the Deltron 3030 debut album on Sound Opinions. Jim, what do you got next? Greg, it is a good day on Sound Opinions whenever I can play some Genesis. Mm-hmm. I, I just love that band all the way from the very, very beginning. Uh, even after Peter Gabriel's departure, I will stick up uh, for Genesis through, and then there were three. Many people won't. <laughs> um, I love Genesis. And, of course, the early albums when Gabriel, who later would become... You know, one of the most clued-in political activists in the world when he was much more obsessed with fantasy. The fourth album, Foxtrot, uh, generally considered one of the best. Uh, it holds the 23-minute epic, Supper's Ready, which is, I, I've, I've been listening since I was 12 or 13. I still don't know what it's about. Something to do with a fantasy world and a messianic 
apocalypse and I don't know, I don't know. A can utility in the coastliners somehow uh, uh, songs like that uh, get them out by Friday. Work in complaints about rents in London that are too high, along with like fantasy <laughs> characters that are coming to Earth to try to save the people. But the song I'm going to play is called Timetable. I think it's the most underrated Genesis song uh, of the Gabriel years. It's super romantic and it's incredibly beautiful with a killer hook. And it's about kings and knights, a carved oak table tells a tale of time when kings and queens sipped wine from goblets gold and the brave would lead their ladies from out the room to arbors cold. Oh. That's, that's heavy, man. That's heavy. That blue 13-year-old Jim Deere Goddess is mine, man. All right? And you, why that's not the theme song for Game of Thrones, I don't know. Genesis Timetable 1972 on Sound Opinions. A carved oak table tells a tale of times when kings and queens sipped wine from goblets gold, and the brave would lead their ladies from out the room to arms cool. A time of valor and legends born. Time when honor meant much more to a man than life And the days you only strive to tell right from wrong That is Genesis with Timetable on Sound Opinions. Jim DeRogatis' pick for a great fantasy record. Greg, we got to talk more about progressive rock in particular because no other genre of music, except maybe metal, talks as much about fantasy themes. Uh, you know, Prague exploded out of the psychedelic era in the late 60s, uh, came into its own in the early 70s, pretty much ruled the era of dinosaur rock until punk uh, sort of began to put a stake through its heart. Uh, but the bands, I think, that did their best work in the heyday of progressive rock, Genesis, yes, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, uh, King Crimson, and later Rush, very much also champions of fantasy. Uh, I think that the best work they did lives on, even though many of us rock critics never give it much respect. 
The history of the music is the subject of a new book called The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock by David Weigel, who happens to be a national political correspondent for The Washington Post, as well as a super geek fan of prog. We recently talked with him about why this subgenre used uh, so closely to fantasy motifs. Nerd culture is fascinating because it's taken over the world now, and you can now uh, read how it takes about how the, the Spider-Man reboot is what's wrong with movies and or America. But at the time, these guys were picking up fantasy references, and you had you know, Bo Hansen, the Swedish progressive rock musician, adapt the whole uh, Lord of the Rings as an album. At that time, I mean, Tolkien was much more of a almost not insider, but a a piece of counterculture. It was it was that it was it was not yet. It would not be for decades. This Peter Jackson, let's adapt every yeah. square inch of this book into a blockbuster film. It was weird, and yeah. you, in the way that Dune was weird, and a lot of sci-fi was weird. So there was this cross pollination of outsider fantasy and sci-fi with this these scenes that are very utopian. Uh, there's there's recreational drug use. There's basically rebellion, which is what I try to convey in the book. Because I feel like this music gets gets uh, gets uh, pigeonholed as dinosaur and irrelevant to young people. No, at the time, I mean, the twenty twenty year old reading uh, Lord of the Rings in 1969 that that was a signal, just like wearing a vel- crushed velvet uh, jacket was <laughs> that you were part of the alternative. So, David, the cover of your book, The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock, we have this uh, tiger with griffin wings kind of stroking a double-necked guitar. Yeah. <laughs> um, the visual element. You know, how important do you think those Roger Dean album covers were? Uh, you know, I mean, he's the, he, everybody had some degree of that, but Dean is the most famous for doing the Yes covers. You know, uh, how, it, it was like you were supposed to sit there read the endless line of notes, lose yourself in the Dean cover art, you know, don't you think? Uh, I think you're right, and I think it also helps identify the kind of music you're really likely to get if you picked it up. kind of signal to the to the buyer that there'd be something surreal if they pick this up. The experience of taking it home and luxuriating in the, not, the whole package and the presentation of the lyrics, the interior art, when it was a, a single immersive experience on these on these speakers or on headphones, yeah, it was just a deeper relationship you had, so the music made, made a lot more sense. Well, I think there was also, too, um, the presentation on the stage, which was part and parcel of the lyrics and the and the overall, you know, sci-fi, otherworldly feel, you know, I, you know, uh, it's almost like a punchline now, you know, like uh, the whole idea of the costumes that Peter Gabriel used to wear in Genesis or uh, Keith Emerson turning those keyboards into like a carnival uh, kind of ride. Um, mm-hmm. Was that directly an extension of the lyrical themes? Was that an attempt to amplify what they were singing about? That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, well, yeah, the, the, the politics of this music were 
I think another reason it gets a little bit disrespected because they they were they never wrote protest songs except with if they did they got very on the nose. It was something like yes writing don't kill the whale. I think that's <laughs> yeah, hard, yeah, yeah. hard song to miss the meaning of. There actually were more songs in Two Four Member that are fairly straightforward um, love songs, except not as generic as the as a three minute pop song, just a l- little bit more reaching. But when they they got deep, it, w- it was kind of casting this image of a fa- of a fantasy world uh, and a lot of the music. And I'm thinking uh, with Genesis too. Uh, sometimes it was it was dark. A lot of the fantasy is fairly veiled allegory for something apocalyptic, be it a climate apocalypse, be it just the end of the world period, like in Supper's Ready. Uh, but that stuff was meant to enhance these metaphors, which they did not consider super silly. And, uh, with, the, with the exception here of uh, there are some people uh, like Todd Rundgren and Frank Zappa who are pretty open that they dabbled in progressive rock and they just thought it was, it was, it was kind of like a fun cul-de-sac to play around in. Yeah. So they would write out of, uh, you know, Todd Rundgren on, on Raw has this multi-part guitar fable sung by an elf, and he did that because he thought it was amusing to him, not because yeah, it was the only yeah. way he thought he could tell the story. Once upon a time, in a land not far from here, there was a place called Harmony. Everyone in Harmony was happy, and this joie de vivre was guarded by the invisible patron, the muse Singring. But jealous forces, and there are always jealous forces in such tales, have conspired to capture the spirit imprisoning it in a chest with four keys and casting the keys to the four corners of the earth so that only four particularly brave and talented individuals might retrieve them. It is here that our story begins. All right, David, I know it's tough to pick a favorite prog rock album about fantasy. There are so many. But what's one worth noting? I mean, I also think uh, the first Magma album because they were writing, oh, well, yeah. they were creating an entire fantasy world with its own language with with with, with their music. We can mm-hmm. never accuse the progressive rock era of not lack of uh, ambition, having ambition, right? They, <laughs> you know, I mean, pretension is a double-edged word, right? No artist accomplishes anything without aspiring to something, right? But 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 then you know, it can be interpreted as full of themselves and pompous, or as like, wow, they were ambitious. They invented a language to sing in. Yeah, I go with the latter. Now that this is a thing we associate more more with geeks than anyone else. Uh, we think of making up a language, you think of either Esperanto or Klingon. Uh, yeah, but Klingon. I think of Sigur Ross, and I think of Magnet mm. doing this kind of the decades mm. before Sigur Ross did it. But the difference being that Sigur Ross is just meant to sound pleasant, whereas the, the planet Kobaya, the, there is a magma mythology, but they're, they're very much uh, people, who <laughs> people who are bored with reality making stuff up on, on the spot. I'm starting to understand, David, why you might be drawn to the utopian and invented world if you have to go to work every day in the Capitol right now in Washington, D.C. 
We've been speaking to David Weigel of the Washington Post and also the author of the show that never ends, The Rise and Fall of Prague Rock on Sound Opinions. Thanks, David, for being our guest. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. When we come back, Greg, more picks of great fantasy songs. Of course, we did a whole show on progressive rock. It's in the archives. Did a whole show on Rush in the archives. As always, we want to hear from you, though. What is your favorite song about a fantasy world? Give us a call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Or you can connect with us through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Later, we'll hear from Neil Halstead of Slow Dive about the song that changed his musical life. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. With his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes, he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Hobbits are peace-loving folks, you know. They're never in a hurry and they take things slow. They don't like to travel away from home. They just like to eat and be left alone. But one day Bilbo was asked to go on a big adventure to the caves below to help some dwarves get back their gold that was stolen by a dragon in the days of old Bilbo. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He is Sir Greg Cott <laughs> of the Kingdom of Mordor. This week we're talking about how fantasy worlds are reflected in rock and roll. Magic, goblins, knights, you get the idea. Greg, you are up next. Give me another pick. Yes, Jim, I'm going to go to the uh, the very dawn of the progressive rock era uh, for a song uh, and a band that blew my young mind when I heard them on Oldies Radio one day. I go, wow, that's an interesting topic. I have no idea what it means, but it is <laughs> transfixing me. And uh, it happened to be Procol Harum with a song, uh, A Whiter Shade of Pale, a huge hit in 1967. People are still debating about what exactly it means, including the, the band itself. I mean, you yeah. still get different opinions from the surviving band members about what this song means and you know, how it, it came to be. Psychoactive drugs, Greg, can cloud what seemed like a good idea at it, the time. It, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, the song really holds up, I think, just as a mood piece, uh, that Matthew Fisher Hammond organ playing, uh, you know, interpolating or ripping off Bach, depending on your, your perspective. Uh, it, it works beautifully here. Uh, singer Gary Brooker's performance and those lyrics by Keith Reed that people are still trying to figure out. From what I can gather, it was basically a, a song... Uh, inspired by a sort of a girl leaves boy or boy leaves girl kind of drunken sexual escapade at a party uh, that spun out into this surreal fantasy epic. Uh, You've got all these images skipping across time and space. We skipped the light fandango. What does that mean exactly? It sounds really cool, though. I don't know. As the Miller told his tale, you know. So you're getting these references to, you know, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, there's elements of Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and that Nobel Prize winning author, Bob Dylan. I think he had a little bit of influence on the oh, on yeah, the wordplay yeah. in this yeah. record as well. I know that guy. Um, so a, fa- 
fascinating puzzle that was created through the words here that uh, work as a great fantasy song. Procol Harum, A Whiter Shade of Pale from 1967 on Sound Opinions. epic times 10, Jim, as far as I'm concerned. What, what have you got next for us? Good job, Greg. I mean, to me, Procol Harum on that song always sounded like the dance band playing on the deck of the Titanic <laughs> as it was going under. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to shift gears uh, completely. In no way, shape, or form is the love of fantastic worlds limited to uh, rock and roll, uh, not heavy metal, not progressive rock. I'm going to play another rap tune. Lavelle William Crump grows up in Mississippi reinvents himself with the hip-hop persona of David Banner, you know, the alternate name of the Hulk, right? Of course, Mm -hmm. Dr. David Banner becomes the Hulk. That's a little bit of fantasy there. Um, I am not a huge fan of Banner's considerable uh, output since 2000. He's made seven albums since 2000, only because I think at times he, he, he traffics in the gangster rap cliches, even though he said he opposes them, and the only reason he's, he's portraying them is because he wants to change uh, things in the African-American community. Hip-hop is sick because America is sick, is a famous quote he gave uh, to Congress, no less. He can have a sense of humor, though, and I think he's best when he is bringing in his love of pop culture, much as Lupe Fiasco does. Lupe, also a big fantasy sci-fi fan, mm-hmm. right? In particular, Greg, on his latest album, The God Box, came out earlier this year. He has a track called My Uzi. Now, half of the song, uh, half of the rap, is is about, uh, you know, gangster bragging about having a really cool machine gun. But he then flips it around. I bear the load, oh, solo by myself, Frodo from The Lord of the Rings. So I guess I don't have to bear it alone. My precious won't leave me. I don't need platinum. I don't need gold. All I need is an Uzi and a clip to load. 
I think that's really funny. Uh, we were talking to David Weigel. I played Ramble on earlier. There is so much Tolkien in in any fantasy, hip hop, rap, rock and roll, progressive rock, heavy metal. So, right? you know, we got to love J.R.R., okay? Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, yeah, I like to think the old professor of ancient languages would have gotten a kick out of this. My Uzi by David Banner on Sound Opinions. My Uzi weigh a ton, I bought it. My, 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 my Uzi weigh a ton, I bought it. Ain't got nobody gone. My Uzi, I just need mighty gone. My Uzi ain't got nobody gone. My Uzi, I just need mighty gone. Guess I have to bear it alone. My precious won't leave me. I'll need platinum, I'll need gold. All I need is the Uzi and the kick the load. It's one mic, this joint flow. Trying not to wear Jordan clothes. These kids are dying. Jordan, no. Nike too. Vanport, Portland, they blew it up. Black Hammers, they chewed it up. Chewed it up, spit it out. That's the kind of thing I'm trying to spit about. Last laws, politics, politics. It's a politics. My Uzi weigh a ton, I bought it. Getting real close, now smelling it. My smelling Uzi weigh a ton, I bought it. Inhaling it. My Uzi lied. My Uzi smelling it. My Uzi, you lied. My Uzi weigh a ton of bowling. My Uzi weigh a ton of bowling. My Uzi by David Banner on Sound Opinions. Once again, taking us to the darkest depths of Mordor. Yes, indeed. Speaking of which, you played that Led Zeppelin cut earlier. You know, there's a big strain of fantasy in a lot of metal songs. You know, some people consider early Zeppelin metal. Uh, Certainly, you know, been the case through the decades where some of the more ambitious metal bands exploring these sci-fi, futuristic themes in in their music. Uh, One of the primary exponents for the last few decades has been a band called Iced Earth. Uh, they've been around since the mid-'80s out of that heavy metal capital of Florida, Tampa, Florida. And their main uh, songwriter is the guitar player, John Schaefer. And he's been playing with these themes almost from the get-go. There's this uh, saga that he's created, this the, the Something Wicked saga, mm. in which uh, you know humanity's evil is eventually the thing that destroys it, aided by this messianic figure. And he's been playing out these themes in songs and albums uh, since the 90s. On Dystopia, which came out in 2011, big inspiration uh, in sci-fi and dystopian movies and themes, V for Vendetta, Soil and Green, etc. We've got an issue here where the planet is in this prison state kind of uh, place. I hate when um, that happens. The title track is, uh, you know, the lyrics are, we'll medicate your pain with our technology. We'll always keep you safe, microchipped like dogs. Sound <laughs> like a like a wonderful place to be. <laughs> the whole album is about similarly dystopian topics, hence the name of the record, Dystopia. Here's the title track from Iced Earth on Sound Opinion. Microchipped like dogs, their thoughts are not their own.
That is dystopia from iced earth on Sound Opinions. We've given a broad definition of fantasy, Greg. Some people may consider that sci-fi, but you know, it's 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 all fantastical to me anyway. And it wraps up our look at fantasy worlds in rock. We want to hear from you, of course. Do you have a favorite song about magic or dragons or fantasy? Or you want us to do the sci-fi episode next? That'd be fine, too. Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Next, we have another installment in our series, Hooked on Sonics, where an artist tells us about the song that got them interested in music. Today, we're going to hear from Neil Halstead. He's a singer and guitarist for the band Slow Dive. Now, Slow Dive was an integral part of that 90s British shoegaze scene, and they recently reunited and released a new self-titled album, their first since 1995. Hi, my name is uh, Neil Halstead, and uh, I'm from the band Slow Dive. One of the songs that was important to me as a musician and a lover of music was You Made Me Realize by My Buddy Valentine. It came out in 1988. It was an EP, and um, you made me realize it was the first track on the EP. I guess in 88 I was 17, and I'd been a really big My Bloody Valentine fan for a few years. It just blew me away the first time I heard it. Just this creative leap that they'd made. And they'd suddenly changed their sound, and it was like they combined the birds with Sonic Youth, and they suddenly had this, like, just this edge to them that hadn't been there before, and like sonically really different. in the middle in the live show they call it the holocaust because it's the bit where everything kind of breaks down and and gets like super noisy and i think that section has become more and more ferocious as time's gone on You know, we share a sound engineer, Michael, our sound engineer. I've talked to him about how during those moments he'll see an audience just start to sway in one direction because a certain frequency will start to affect the whole audience. And it's at such a level that it's almost a, a weapon. It's basically like the bit in in 8 Miles High, you know, but to the 10th degree. Like this weird thing where a song almost falls apart that you don't get often in pop music. What was appealing about those records is 
that it's immersive. You know, these records weren't really designed for radio, and it's music that's designed to be listened to loud. Yeah, I have no idea what the lyrics on You Made Me Realize are. Oh, so that wasn't an important part of the song, but it's the feeling. I, I think just that, that balance of noise and harmony and melody, and it's just, it's a brilliant pop song. And I, I suppose what also I took from that is that you can just take all these influences and throw them together and, and you can create something just really wonderful um, out of all those different recipes. You know, ingredients, you know. It's weird, isn't it? I can't imagine life without that record because it would have meant that everything else that after it wouldn't have happened either, you know. I, I'm pretty sure Slow Dive would have never existed in its, in its current existence. There was a point when we were so enthralled to the Valentines and that sound that it was a little uncomfortable for us as a band. You know, the first demo we did sounded exactly like the Valentines. I think with most young bands, that's how you work, that's how you get through that, that point, you know. I think you end up boring so much, or even just copying, you know, but that, it, in some ways, we always felt like by falling short of the Valentines, we created our own thing, you know, it's sort of these accidents that you're aiming for something, but you always end up, you know, creating something else, you know. That was Neil Halstead of Slow Dive talking about My Bloody Valentines, You Made Me Realize, the song that got him hooked on Sonics. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-depth conversation with the director of The Decline of Western Civilization and Wayne's World, which is celebrating Woo! his 25th anniversary, Penelope Spheris. Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banisak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and our intern, Isabella Martin. I'm in the phone with this one Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Mike Mikulski from uh, Western Springs, Illinois, and I've been listening to the show on the podcast, and I love the two episodes about the punk revolution in 1977, both in the U.K. and the U.S. And it brings back my memory. I mean, I grew up in 77 in high school listening to Thin Lizzy and Jethro Tull, and then in the fall of 78, actually, I was a little late, a friend from college brought this record home. It was Rocket Russia, and it was amazing. We were sitting in the basement playing Monopoly, never heard anything like this before in our lives. Remember my leg jumping up and down like a sewing machine. It led to so much more music in the 70s and 80s. 
it lives on today into the indie movement. So thanks for putting this together. Love the show, and particularly these two episodes. Yes, hi. Uh, my name is Don Guerra. I was the night manager of CBGBs from about 77 to 81. The thing that troubles me about those times was I lived on 2nd Street, uh, 62nd Street with Arturo Vega and Joey Ramon in a tiny little building. And yes, there were very dangerous areas around there, but you had to be doing bad things to pretty much get hurt. And I remember Cynthia Heimel, who wrote a legendary article that, that described the punk scene. We took her out, Legs McNeil and I, and gave her the greatest time and showed her how nice it was and how safe it was and how CBGB's was the safest place there was in New York. And then she comes out and writes this hideously, you know, I was terrified the whole time, which was baloney. It was cool. And everybody was trying to do things. I'm Mitch. Uh, now I'm calling about uh, your episode on Year Punk Broke Part 2. During the 70s, I lived on the Lower East Side of New York, graduated high school in 76. And during that time, I went to CPGB's quite a bit. Really, the most memorable band I saw there was uh, the Talking Heads. David Byrne would start his the set that they had the same way, he would, he would say. The name of this band is The Talking Heads. The name of this song is Hardest Only. And then they just launch into the song. They, I couldn't believe how uh, the sound they had from a three-piece band, um, and most of the time with an acoustic guitar uh, backing. Thanks for everything you do. This is this is great, and look forward to the next show. You don't want to be my friend. You're screwed up, and I can't do anything. I can't do anything for you. Greg and Jim, Luke Sinclair from Denver, Colorado, just uh heard your episode on the She-Devils, the last one, and uh, wanted to comment. I couldn't help but hear in their song, You Don't Know, the um, sounded like a take on Rush Home Ruffians by the Smiths off uh, Meet His Murder. Everything between the lyrics, her delivery of the of the lyrics, and also the guitar work underneath it. So, just wanted to comment on that, see what you guys thought. And someone falls in love and someone's beaten up No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.